What a weekend it has been. For those who were here yesterday, uh, I feel like we have just been on a, an incredible journey. Uh, six hours of fellowship and teaching and you're just full to the brim. If you weren't here, uh, I don't want to exclude you from that, but catch up and just see what it was that we had the privilege of experiencing yesterday. And so I wrestled Sunday's coming. Uh, what am I going to share with my people on Sunday? And this is what I've settled on. So we'll look at a particular subject in just a moment. But let me begin by saying this. Anybody who tells you that the Christian life is easy is lying to you. The Bible never promises that a life abiding in Christ is exempt from suffering. In fact, the opposite is taught. We will experience great hardship, disappointments, griefs, overwhelming circumstances, and this is right and good. One of the greatest lies that was spawned in hell is the prosperity gospel. And let me explain what that is. The prosperity gospel teaches that when you come to Christ, everything will be healthy, wealthy, and you will be inoculated from all adversity. That is not true. The motive behind that prosperity gospel, which, by the way, is prevalent in contemporary church, is so wrong. This weekend, we've been talking about abiding in Christ. We've heard teaching on the importance of ensuring that our walk with God is real. And we've learned about the necessity of prayer and deepening our relationship with God. And in meditating on these truths yesterday, early this morning, I was thinking about all that we had learned. I re-looked over my notes and thought about what was said yesterday. I began to ask myself and my own soul, what happens when I fail to abide in Christ? What should I do when life overwhelms me? And it will. I don't want to live in this false place that says I'm going to abide in Christ and there's never going to be any problems. I'm never going to mess up my devotion time. I'm never going to forget to do what I ought to do before the Lord. What happens when that happens? I asked myself, how can I carry on when there is great hardship and the refining fires burn brightly? What do I do when the Lord really begins to prune? How can I think right when it seems like God is even against me? These and many other questions have formed the basis of what it is that I'm going to share with us today. After a wonderful weekend of fellowship and teaching, I want to conclude with this message, and I'll give you the title in a moment. But before I do, let me give you some context to the passage and the book that we're going to look at, and then we'll turn and read it. The author of the book, and some of you will guess what it is as soon as I say the author, but the author of the book is referred to as the weeping prophet. He was a man called to be a prophet of God before he was born. His ministry spanned more than 40 years in service for God. And in these decades of service, they were filled, filled with discouragement, heartache, hardship. He was rejected by the people of Israel 
when he had come to help. He was sorely mistreated for serving the Lord and proclaiming the message he'd received. He was beaten and put in stocks. He was given a death sentence. He was left to die in the mud by his people. He was called a liar. Perhaps the saddest book in the whole of the Bible is a book with the title Lamentations or literally Sorrows. Jeremiah's Sorrows. This little book of five chapters is a response to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in 586 BC and the subsequent affliction that the people of God incurred. Each of the five chapters in this little book, Lamentations, is a separate poem. It's a separate writing poem that the people rehearsed and talked about every year. In fact, in Israel today, on August the 31st this year, the people commemorate, as they do each year, this destruction of Jerusalem in 586 AD and then in 70 AD with a 25-hour fast, and they read in its entirety the book of Lamentations. In the third poem in the book of Lamentations, the third chapter, we receive insight into the prophet's utter despair. The bitterness of his soul, his, his, the way he's looking at life, his perspective on things. And God has allowed this to be in the canon of Scripture to teach us something very important. But halfway through this gloomy text, we find and observe an incredible contrast. Turn with me, please, to Lamentations chapter 3. And we're going to read some verses in this portion of Scripture that I hope will encourage us in the topic we're going to look at which I'll announce in just a moment Lamentations chapter 3 beginning in verse 1 see the horror of this passage see the misery see the bitterness of this passage as we read it Jeremiah writes I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath that's God's wrath He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He's besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. Verse 9, he has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughing stock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. 
So I say my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my afflictions and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers. It is bowed down within me. But. Notice that but. But this I call to mind. And therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. To crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth, to deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High, to subvert a man in his lawsuit, the Lord does not approve. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man about the punishment of his sins? Verse 40, let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. I want to preach on this subject this morning, simply this, hope in God. Hope in God. Father, this is the end of uh, a big weekend. Uh, We have had a massive download of information. And I pray for these next moments that you would cause our attention to be fixed upon your word, the truth that uh, will come forward from that. And that this would be a a good conclusion to what we have seen and heard already as we go from this place seeking to abide perpetually in Christ, knowing that we will fail, knowing that we will struggle, knowing that uh, the sorrows of this life will encamp against us, knowing that our flesh is eager to bring us down, the world and the devil stand ready to take us out. And sometimes it appears like you're not even with us. Oh Lord, may we find hope in this text. May we find hope in you. May we remember these truths and perhaps in some sense they may even be prophetic for the week ahead. Perhaps we will face some insurmountable problem, some overwhelming situation. Oh Lord, let us run back to this text, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. It's such a mammoth text. It's such an incredible text. Verses 1 through 20 are the sorrow-stricken soul of this man, Jeremiah, a prophet of God who has experienced so much hardship and difficulty. And we could take the time to to look at those different aspects and see his perspective in in greater fullness by looking at the book of Jeremiah. But rather than doing that this morning, I would have us find our hope in God in this particular text. In verse 21, after expressing the hardship, Jeremiah says, But this I call to mind, and therefore I have 
hope. The first thing I would like us to see this morning is deriving hope from past experience. Deriving hope from past experience. The backdrop is this. Tragedy has struck. I mean, imagine for a moment that you are suddenly transported from this particular time where you are now into the Old Testament in 586 BC and Israel is besieged. The temple is destroyed. God's people are scattered. Exile is happening. And you are wondering, Lord, why? I have been preaching for some 40 years about your judgment coming. I've been faithful. I've been watching and praying and abiding in you, obeying you. And this has happened. Something major has occurred. A tragedy has struck. Suffering is rife at this time in Jeremiah's life. And God's people, let alone, he's not even finding fellowship in God's people because they've turned against him. They hate him. They're prepared to kill him and leave him in the pit. He is injured physically and spiritually and mentally. And in the midst of this sonnet of sadness, there is a sudden lightning burst of truth. Suddenly in the midst of it all, he says in 21, But this I call to mind. And therefore I have hope. Jeremiah made a decision. He made a decision to look at his past experiences with God. I shared yesterday a little bit about some of the things that occurred in my own life last year and some of the hardships that I experienced in trying to walk with the Lord in my own strength and getting further and further into the areas of despair. And and there was one point there where I didn't even know what I believed anymore. Everything seemed to have turned against me. My mind and my spiritual thinking was so foggy and dark. I had nothing whatsoever to hold on to it felt at that time. And I can understand what Jeremiah did here because everything in front of me was dark. The scripture wasn't meaning a whole lot to me at that time. The only thing that I could turn to was the past experiences of God. The only thing that I could look to was God was faithful there. The past, he proved himself. And now in the present, I'm facing this darkness and this mist and this fog and I can't see the way forward. And Jeremiah is in the same situation. His life has been destroyed. And he says, I haven't got anything. God is against me. What is going on? And then suddenly he recalls in his mind, God, what you were then, what you did Back then comes through to the present and the instruction and the the importance of this passage for us today is to not simply stay in that place of bitterness and darkness right at this moment, but decide to remember. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, God has proven himself and therefore you have something to look back on. Even if you've been a Christian for a month or two, you have seen the grace of God and the salvation of God that has been worked and manifested in your life. And you can cling to that reality even if you don't know your Bible well. You know the experience of God. 
And as you grow in the word, that experience gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And so when you get to 30 and 40 and 50 and 60 years of being in the Lord, you have a great pool of information and experience to draw upon when it seems hopeless. And this is Jeremiah's situation. Sometimes in the place of utter darkness, despair, can't see the way forward. Our hope is in our past experiences with God. And this was the case in Jeremiah's life. When you find yourself, church, Christian, seeking the Lord and it's all not working. And it's out of your control. And this is all just too hard. When you find yourself there and the mist and the fog of uncertainty descends upon your life. Call to mind the truth about God. That you've experienced in the past. You will find hope. And so the question has to be asked. What shall be the foundation of my hope? And that brings us to our second point here. This I call to mind and therefore I have hope. Verse 22. And following we see secondly. The character of God. What shall be my hope? Considering and understanding the character of God. And as per usual, I have a number of subpoints. So stay tuned. The very first aspect of the character of God found in our text in verse 22 the love of God. The love of God. Jeremiah writes, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Never ceases. He calls to mind God's love for him. God's love for his people. God's love. And there are two very important facets seen that died. I want you to miss this morning. When we read this, it says the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Note, firstly, God's love is not subject to change or gradation. Steadfast love. Not fickle love, not moment by moment waning ebbs and flows of love. The steadfast, the fixed, not subject to gradation love of God. This is the reality, Christian, you cannot get any more of God's love. You have the fullness of God's love at this very instant. I can't stand some of the contemporary Christian songs that talk about all I want is more of God's love. Every time I hear that kind of a song, I just I groan because there's a theological dilemma there. That is that if somehow I can get more of God's love, then he doesn't love me with his fullness. And what happens if tomorrow suddenly I don't do something in accordance with his will and he stops loving me to that full extent? That's not Bible. That's not God. We have the fullness of the love of Christ shed abroad in our hearts. You can't get any more. And that is such a blessing, a steadfast love. But the second thing about God's love here is it says it never ceases. It's everlasting. God's love is unchanging in its absolute sense. It will not end. You say, well, what happens if I do? Don't even start that sentence. What happens if I do that? It, God's love is steadfast and it is forever. Now, that doesn't give us license to sin. Well, God loves me anyway. I'll go do it. That's not what the scripture says. We're not to do that. But God's love is steadfast and it never ceases. In fact, if you take the Hebrew phrase here, 
The literal translation, the rendering of this verse is, because of the steadfast love of the Lord, we are not cut off. Because of God's steadfast love, we are not cut off. Here's what that means. That means that all of my attitudes and my behavior deserve to be cut off. But because of God's love, it never ceases. So what does that mean? Does it reside with me? No, it does not. It resides in the character of him. And just as well, because if it was based upon me, we would fail every time. Every time. Oh, the love of God. It's constant changeless he will never cast us off take hope brethren in the love of God secondly in verse 22 we see the mercy of God the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases his mercies never come to an end mercy in this context mercy is a word that has many different meanings many different shades and colors to it But in this context, it refers to the compassion and the cherishing heart of God. This comes out of his love. It is his kind disposition towards his children. In fact, the original Hebrew word here used is often used in secular writings describing a mother who cherishes her newborn child. When that child first enters into this world, that joy and that, uh, that love and that cherishing of that newborn child is the very word here used for God's compassion towards us. Wow. Wow. God's disposition, his default position, who he is, says that he is one of care, one of concern, one of affection. He doesn't despise us. Nor does he regret saving us. God does not sit up there in the heavenlies and think, shouldn't have saved him, shouldn't have saved her. This isn't really working out. Wish I hadn't done that, but because it's forever, I'll just keep on going. That's not the attitude of our God. It is an attitude of compassion, of mercy, of love, of concern, of ongoing affection towards us. Different from love. Stemming out of love. And look at what it says. These mercies, these compassions, this concern for us never comes to an end. They are new every morning. They are new. You know what this means? This means that, in other words, the mercies of God are fresh and in constant supply. You're not going to run out You're not going to think, oh boy, I think I've crossed the line of the threshold of God's mercy for the day. That's not the case. They are fresh, vibrant and in constant supply. What does that mean? What does that mean for us today? What what, what do we derive? What application do we take from this? Well, simply put, we don't need to wonder if God's feelings towards me today are different from yesterday. We don't have to wonder. I wonder if God's going to have a mood swing today towards me. He is not human. Now, if you spend enough time with me, you're going to find I have some mood swings. I have some mood swings. Things don't always go to plan. I get a little bit frustrated. In fact, I had to seek apology from someone in here just recently because of that. My mood swings. Sometimes I'm so focused on this. and It's not like God's up in heaven and saying, well, I'm really focused on this right now. I'll talk to you later. You're not like humans. 
We look at the Lord Jesus, we look at his life and we find, and in our Heavenly Father, we find that his feelings are consistent all the time towards us. What an incredible reality. He is the same yesterday, today and forever. Your experience with him, though limited because of this body of flesh, but your experience with his consistency is going to be the same all throughout heaven. He's never going to change. It's never going to be suddenly, I don't really like you anymore. I'm not going to help you. The benefits and blessings of God's character are experienced every single day. And they are fresh and new and vibrant. The mercy of God. New every morning. Verse 23 gives us the third character aspect of God. The faithfulness. Of God. Jeremiah says, Great is your faithfulness. Abundant beyond measure. Great. The word faithfulness speaks in this reference of steadfastness, trustworthiness, assurance. When I uh, took my Concordance and had a look at this particular Hebrew word, I found that this is the same word that is used in Exodus 17.12, which gives us a good little picture. It says, but Moses' hands grew heavy. So they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side, the other on the other side, so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. We could say his hands were faithful until the going down of the sun. Now it's just a human helping a human out. How much greater is God upholding our hands in the battle? How much greater is his steadfastness? How much greater is he immovable and is he able to be trusted? In fact, Moses, that same man, says this of God. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness. Faithfulness. Jeremiah, excuse me, Deuteronomy 32 and verse 4. When we acknowledge God's faithfulness, we will exercise dependence upon him. We will recognize that even though my mind says God doesn't see my way, just like those in Isaiah chapter 40 said, his faithfulness is great and he secures my feet. When I can't see the way, I know that he's been faithful in the past and he will continue to be in the future. The love of God, the mercy of God, the faithfulness of God. Let's look fourthly at the strength and satisfaction of God. In verse 24, the Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. This is an interesting little phrase that unless you have a Hebraic mind, you may not fully comprehend this picture when the Bible says the Lord is my portion. Well, when you literally look at that, the phrase means the Lord is my allotment, my division, my inheritance, which in itself has an exciting concept to it. But there's more to it. This particular word used in context of God speaks of complete and total satisfaction. And here's why. It was used of a meal, a physical meal, from which the person eating would derive strength from the food, nourishment 
sustenance and satisfaction. With that context, the Lord is that spiritual food, that portion which enables us to continue living for him and satisfies our spiritual appetite. You see, our hope is found in him alone. There is no other source of strength. There is no other source of true soul satisfaction. But if we're honest, if I'm honest, many times I leave the nourishment and the enjoyment of God. And like the children of Israel, I try to drink from broken cisterns. Jeremiah writes in chapter 2, Has a nation changed its God? Even though they are not gods? But my people, Jeremiah says, this is in preaching, but my people have changed their glory for that which doesn't profit. He says, be astonished, O heavens, be appalled at this, be shocked and utterly desolate, declares the Lord. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. See, here's what happens. We suddenly start moving away from the things of God. We stop abiding as we ought to and things go wrong and we go further and further and we begin to drink from the cisterns of this life and we wonder why we're not satisfied. We wonder why it's, it's not nourishing. Why I don't find pleasure in this? Because for a Christian, we know where true satisfaction is found and it's God alone. So he is the strength and satisfaction. And then, fifthly, we see here in verse number 25, the goodness of God. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. Now, it's very important that we understand this passage of scripture here. The Lord is always good, correct? The Lord is always good. There's never a time when the Lord is not good because God is good. But in this passage, it's conditional goodness. This cannot be talking about God's goodness in its fullness. He is here saying the Lord is good conditionally to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. So we're not questioning whether God is good all the time. He is. But there is special attention given to those who wait for him, to the soul that seeks him. Jeremiah here is speaking of exclusive blessings associated with those who would wait patiently and consistently and hope in God. In fact, interestingly enough, this same word wait here is the same word used in Isaiah 40, 31 that says, but they that wait, hope in the Lord, shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is not a promise given to every Christian. It's a promise given to every Christian who will wait, who will hope. God is good. That's true. But here it is. God is good to those who will seek him and exclusive blessings are associated with that. So what am I saying? I'm saying this. Don't settle for superficial Christianity. Don't settle for the shallow waters of Christianity. Dive into the depths of God's glorious character and you will experience greater, deeper blessings in the walk with God and you will experience profounder truths about his character, the goodness of God. 
And then sixthly, in verse 26, I want you to see the salvation of God. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Verse 26. Here is the truth, Christian, and sometimes we forget this. Our God is a saving God. Sometimes we think we have a God who saved us. That's bad. He did. But we, present tense and continuously, have a God who is saving us. Not just in justification, sanctification, glorification, but in everyday life. He is saving us. Our God is our superhero. And here Jeremiah says, it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Wait quietly for it. He has the power to rescue his people. He demonstrated this in forgiving us from our sin and cleansing us and setting us as his children. But he continues to display that power in our life every day. And when you fail and when you fall and when the destruction of Jerusalem is at hand, when everything is going wrong, wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Jeremiah was facing insurmountable problems. Perhaps something that we will never experience in its fullness. He was overwhelmed by the grief and despair and he counsels his own soul to wait for God's salvation. Here's the truth. God will break through. Wait for his salvation. Stop struggling. Stop toiling. And stop trying to forge your own path forward. Be still. And be ready to see and hear and experience his salvation. Very interestingly, look at the text. We have a very important word here. It is good that one should wait quietly. Quietly. You know what this literally means? For one of bad vernacular, it means be dumb. Not dumb, stupid, be dumb. Be quiet. Shut up. That's what this says here. It says exactly this. Just stop. Be quiet. Stop your lips from talking. Stop making noise. Stop struggling. Cease from that struggle. And in silence, wait. While there is all the noise and the clamor and my own thoughts and my own emotions and all this, just stop and wait and wait. And when you wait, you will hear the soft, still voice of God as he directs you. Too often we're like the disciples in the New Testament in the Sea of Galilee. A great storm comes. These are experienced fishermen and there they are. We'll take care of this. The Lord Jesus is asleep in the back. Let's row a bit harder. We'll get there. We're experienced at this. We know what we're doing. We'll take care of this situation. They believe that they could overcome the forces of nature by their toil instead of trusting in the Savior in the boat. And awaiting him to stand and say, peace, be still. We often try and bring ourselves to safety. But in hanging on, we lose sight of the importance of stopping quietly and waiting for God to save us. Jeremiah calls us to stop, to listen, to wait for God's salvation. He will bring us out of our lamentations. And restore to us the joy of our salvation. 
And so those were the six sub-points. It's okay. We have two main points to cover and these will be real quick. I want us now to go down through the text to verse 40 and 41. I don't have time to give you all the ins and outs of in between and there's lots in there. But having looked at this character of God, now I want to encourage us to examine, thirdly, our ways. Examine your ways. Jeremiah says, let us test and examine our ways. I want to issue a call, church, from the heart of your pastor to you to examine your ways. I've needed to. I've had to much over the last three and six months and much over yesterday and this morning examining my ways and testing them. Here is the call. It's the call to take inventory right now of your life. To take inventory of whether or not you are abiding in Christ. Whether or not you are simply on the treadmill of Christianity. Whether or not you're going through the the motions of all of these things. Or whether or not you're in a place of despair. At this moment, take inventory. Where am I? In our business, it is important for us in the shop up the road to take regular stock take of what's going on, lest I lose sight of uh, this is out of stock or we've got too many of these. Take it. We've got to do that in our spiritual life. Take inventory. What is it in our spiritual life? There's too much of this going on. I need to take care of that. There's too little of this going on. I need to get that right. Disciplines and balances constantly taking inventory, examining, examining our heart and our life. The Bible says, guard your heart with all diligence. For out of it are the affairs of life. Watch over it. Take inventory of it. The child of God is called upon to keep short accounts with God. Perhaps our daily prayer, not in ritual, in truth, ought to be, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there's any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way of everlasting. The psalmist is saying, hey, my heart is, Lord, take, remove, fix, whatever. But please lead me into yourself. Lead me into the path of your kingdom. Lead me on the way that I ought to go. Examine me. And so, church, are you abiding in Christ? Are your ways in accord with God's ways? You're walking in the truth of God's character. Or... Are you allowing your emotions and your human wisdom to rule you every day? And they will. They will. If you let your human emotions, if you allow your flesh to take control, it will take control. Give it an inch and it'll take a mile. We must keep in check. Examine your ways. Thirdly, and then lastly, for us this morning, bringing to a close everything from this weekend The fourth and final aspect, return to the Lord with your heart and your hands. Return to the Lord with your heart and your hands. Look at verse 40. Return to the Lord, exclamation mark. Let us lift our hearts and our hands to God in heaven. Revival, Christian, 
Revival, we've seen revivals, we've read of revivals in the past. Revivals is not a great awakening happening, although that can be part of it. Revival is simply my heart returning to the Lord. That's revival. Personal revival ought to be occurring regularly. It's not some uh, revivalist needs to be up the front to preach and thousands come forward. And that may happen and that's wondrous. But what we really want is personal revival. Day by day, moment by moment, returning to the Lord. And revival begins in the heart, the invisible part of us. It's not an external thing. It results in the external, but it commences in the heart, the spirit, the inner man. Jeremiah says, return to the Lord. He does not say return to the church. He does not say return to the ministry. He doesn't say return to the fellowship. He doesn't even say return to the word of God, as important as that is, and prayer. He says return to the Lord. The Lord. Not the pastor, not the elders, not the church. The Lord. And there's a very important order and progression here as we close. Notice what it says. Lift up our hearts. The heart must precede the hands get that wrong and it will be legalism if you begin to worship with your hands metaphorically serving with your hands in the ministry before the heart is right that is hypocrisy and that is legalism there's an order to this the heart first god wants your heart our heavenly father says my son give me thine heart the heart And then, secondly, the hands. And look just quickly as we close. The lifting, the lifting of the hands and the the heart and the hands is in reference to worship. Worship begins in the soul of man, the internal and invisible part of man. Now, sadly, and I'm not making a judgment call or condemning, but sadly, in our Christian culture today, there is a huge amount of external worship. There is a huge amount of rigmarole and fuss and smoke and all kinds of stuff going on in contemporary church today. Um, There are lots of hands getting held high physically in churches today. Lots of eyes being closed in worship. And I'm not saying those things are wrong in and of themselves. But what I am saying is we can replace the internal change. With an external. We can somehow be driven by emotion and somehow feel like we're connected with God in what we do externally. If that is the outworking of the heart, that's fine. But if it is just an externalism, if it's just to be a part of things, one of the reasons why I don't want to myself raise hands and and close my eyes and those sort of things, though I will quite happily do that in private, is because I don't want false worship in my own heart. I don't trust my heart. I don't trust it and I know that I can be driven by emotion and please don't misunderstand if that's what you're, that's fine. But quite often the decision I make when leading and and not getting into that is because I know my heart is fickle. I know it is and it's easy to go with external. I don't want external. I want internal and God wants internal. And if the external comes from the internal, well, hallelujah, God is glorified. But I caution you to be careful about externalisms, motions of worship, must spring from a revived heart, 
a heart in tune with Christ, one that is abiding in Christ. As we close this weekend, this time of grand fellowship, rich fellowship teaching, I don't know what the Lord would have for you this week. I don't know why he's led me to this passage that is a, well, at best, first part of it is filled with anguish, filled with grief. But my prayer is that verse 21 through 26, 40 and 41 would be your portion, would be what you remember this week. I call this to mind and therefore I have hope, hope in God as you abide in Christ. Father, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for the strength that you've given to me to preach today. Uh, you know the, my own turmoils of heart and my wrestles and the struggles that I have faced in preparation. And thank you for just enabling me this morning. Thank you for these, my people, your people, uh, the ones to whom you've called me to shepherd. And I thank you for them, Lord. Uh, Thank you for the experiences we've had together as family over this weekend. And Lord, I just pray with all the the strength that I can muster that you would help us this week, this day even. Lord, to call to mind the hope that we have in you. That Lord, the the motions of Christianity, the, the treadmill... Lord, wouldn't be what we are living, but that we would be connected, communing with you in spirit and in truth and worshipping you in spirit and in truth, in spirit with our innermost man, with the sincerity of our heart and in truth about your character. We would know who you are. And Lord, if we don't, help us to find more out about you. Thank you for Jeremiah's testimony here through all the failures and the hardships and the struggles. As we fail this week, and we will, may we recall to mind this hope. In Jesus' name, amen.